On this week's edition of New York Now, an update in the primary race for governor. Senator Chuck Schumer's Republican challenger joins us. We'll discuss the future of alcohol to go and Hochul targets cybersecurity amid the Russia-Ukraine crisis. I'm Dan Clark, and this is New York Now. Today, the Senate majority will pass legislation. I will fight like hell for you every single day, like I've always done. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. The race for governor got a little more complicated this week on the Republican side with the late entry of businessman Harry Wilson. You might remember Wilson from 2010 when he ran against state controller Tom DiNapoli. He came closer to winning statewide office that year than any other Republican has in the last four election cycles. And since then, Republicans in New York have been trying to get him to run again, but for governor. So imagine their surprise when Wilson announced his campaign this week, eight months after the party already picked its presumptive nominee, Congressman Lee Zeldin. But Zeldin had his own big announcement this week. He picked NYPD commanding officer Allison Esposito as his running mate. She'll now seek the Republican nomination for lieutenant governor, and she's already taking aim at Albany, blaming Democrats for the state's problems. One party rule in Albany has driven our state to the brink of no return, and it is critical that we elect Republican leadership to the executive branch, but also to break the supermajorities in the Senate and Assembly. But Zeldin and Esposito have a long road ahead if they're going to beat Hochul in November. That's according to a new poll from Siena College this week. Let's get into it with John Campbell from WNYC and Gothamist. John, thank you as always. Thank you for having me, Dan. A fun time polls are when we get an update in these races for governor. <laughs> so first I want to talk about Kathy Hochul and her primary. So like past elections, she's facing a primary. This time she's facing a primary, as we've told our audience many times, from New York City public advocate Jamani Williams and then uh, Congressman Tom Swazi. She has a very wide lead ahead in that race. Can Jamani or Swazi make up that ground going into the June primary, do you think, based on past elections? Well, listen, we're, we're a little less than four months away. A lot can happen, sure. But this is a big lead. It's 46% for, for Kathy Hochul, 17 for Jamani Williams on her left, and 9% for Tom Swazi on her right. And she is trying to occupy that more moderate lane uh, among Democrats, and it's it's... You know, it, so far she has positioned herself as the front runner. She's raised more than $20 million. That is a lot of money. That is a record-breaking amount of money. It's for a so much money. Period. I can't believe that she raised that much money. And, in that and, short and money doesn't necessarily translate to votes, but it is a big deal because it allows you to air advertisements. It allows you to uh, reach constituencies that that you might not otherwise be unable to reach. And she has the power of incumbency, too. You know, mm -hmm. she is more well-known than her opponents by the very virtue of her being in the governor's office right now. And that's something that, that helps her against her Democratic opponents, and it's something that certainly will help her against her Republican opponents. So we don't have any polling on Kathy Hochul versus a Republican, because right. obviously the Republican nominee hasn't been officially chosen. They'll choose it at the, uh, the nominating co convention next week. But we do have some polling here in the Siena poll about the Republican candidates in the primary and their favorability and their name recognition. So the thing that jumps out of me, and this has jumped out of me in the last Siena poll as well, is that nobody really knows who these Republican candidates are. So then what's their path to even challenging Hochul when she has the bully pulpit of the governor's office and these Republicans 
are unrecognizable. <laughs> she has the bully pulpit of the governor's office, and she also has the advantage of, of two to one, a two to one Democratic state, more than two to one Democratic state. Right. Um, but there's a lot of time for, for Republicans to, to introduce themselves to the electorate. You have a handful of Republicans right now. You've got Lee Zeldin, the congressman from Long Island. Uh, you've got uh, Rob Astorino, who ran for, uh, for governor before. You've got Andrew Giuliani, who seems to be the most well-known of any of the Republican candidates based on polling, but mm -hmm. that could be a function of his famous father, Rudy Giuliani. And then this week you did have a, an interesting twist here, which is a guy by the name of Harry Wilson, who is a business consultant, a former hedge fund manager, a wealthy individual who previously ran for office in 2010 and has shown some level of willingness to put his own money into the race. And money can be an equalizer. So Harry Wilson joined, joined the race this week. He is going to be at the convention, uh, or, or at least his, his people are going to be at the convention. I don't know if he'll make the ballot that way, but certainly he can try to petition his way on after. And he could be, he could be a player here. He could be. Do you think that anybody else gets on the ballot at the convention? It, we're, all, we're all just looking to our crystal ball here. We don't know. We have no idea. Well, but. so to get on the ballot, you need to get at least 25% of the weighted vote of the Republican State Committee. And so far, I mean, Lee Zeldin seems to be cleaning up among, yeah. among leaders. He's got endorsements from 60 of 62 county Republican leaders. Uh, the only ones that haven't endorsed him are Westchester, who's backing Rob Astorino, their hometown candidate and Lewis County, which is, is, is backing their local sheriff who's, who's running a long shot bid. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that nobody else will make that 25% mark, but generally speaking, committee members follow their, their county leaders. Uh, and if, if Lee Zeldin has 60 of 62 counties, that means that he's well on his way to being the only one on the ballot. You know, something else in this poll that we were talking about before we got on the air is this striking statistic. I, I don't have it right in front of me, but 91% of voters say that crime is a priority for them. I, I think that... It's, so, so crime is either a very serious issue or a somewhat serious issue. Yeah. So how do you think that affects this year in the legislature and the elections, I imagine it must mean that the lawmakers are going to do something crime-related. Whether that looks like tweaks to bail reform, probably not, but I don't know where else they go with it. Well, on the legislature side, you see the, the, the legislature, the Democratic-led leg legislature, facing pressure from the Democratic mayor of New York City to change the, the bail laws that they just changed a few years ago. Uh, and they've, the, the leadership has signaled that they don't intend on doing that. So whether or not something happens there, it, it depends on what kind of pressure they face from the public, what kind of pressure they face at the ballot box. Uh, that said, it is going to be an issue in the gubernatorial campaign. The Republicans are going to make it an issue. Mm. Tom Swasey is trying to make it an issue in the Democratic primary. Uh, and, and it is, you know, that poll number is really telling because you know, we know that historically crime rates are below where they were decades ago. Right. But if people feel like crime is a, a very serious issue or a somewhat serious issue, that's really all that matters in terms of electoral politics. So you see candidates trying to exploit that. You see candidates trying to make that their issue. That's part of the reason why Lee Zeldin picked Allison Esposito, a, a, right. a decades-long member of the NYPD as his running mate. They're trying to be law and order candidates uh, and make that the major issue of the campaign. Which I'm wondering, it was certainly effective in last year's elections. I mean, we can't say 
one reason or another definitively why somebody wins an election or why somebody loses an election. But we certainly saw Republicans clean house on Long Island for the, the county executive seat and the, the DAC. Yeah. So I think that their messaging has been really effective. We'll see if it continues to be effective this year. But we will leave it there. John Campbell from WNYC and Gothamist, thank you. Thank you. Staying with politics now, as we just told you, Republicans will gather in Nassau County next week for their state nominating convention. That's where they pick their preferred nominees for statewide office, like governor. But that also includes the party's nomination for U.S. Senate here in New York. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is up for re-election this year, and he's getting a challenge from a few Republicans, including political newcomer Joe Pinion. Pinion is best known as a political commentator on TV, but also has experience in healthcare and energy advocacy. And he says Schumer could be vulnerable to an upset. We spoke this week. Joe, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Good to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, anytime. So you're running for U.S. Senate against Senator Chuck Schumer here in New York. First, I want to introduce you to our viewers here. So tell us a little bit about who Joe Pinion is. What are you doing right now? What have you done before that led you to this moment? Certainly. Well, I'm a lifelong New Yorker, born and raised in Yonkers, New York. Uh, attended Horace Mann High School in Riverdale in the Bronx. Had the opportunity to go to Colgate University, played football there, go Gate. Uh, from a political perspective, I've been in the uh, political space for a little while. I was the outreach director uh, for political organizations here in New York for a very long time. Was the um, national rapid response director for the National Federation of Young Republicans for a while. And these publicly facing opportunities allowed me to be able to interface with the media, which led to opportunities uh, to be a political commentator. Uh, and my decision to get into this race uh, was not because of some lifelong ambition. Uh, but certainly by looking at the pain that people in New York were experiencing. Um, it came to me that there was no other choice but to get into a race when the person who's supposed to be protecting the interest of all New Yorkers um, effectively has placed their head in the sand, uh, to the choosing to hold on to power for himself instead of using that power uh, to empower the citizens of the state. So let's talk about that. So Chuck Schumer is the U.S. Senate Majority Leader right now. It's the first time that New York has had that kind of power in the federal government in decades. Why should voters pick you over Chuck Schumer when if you come into office, you would not be the majority leader, so you may not be able to provide the same kind of uh, federal aid and resources to New York that he's able to in that position? I think that's a lot of inside baseball that uh, sounds good to voters until they ask themselves the question, what has all of this influence actually yielded uh, for my everyday life? Uh, Chuck Schumer prides himself on going to all 62 counties for the 24 years he's been in the United States Senate. He says he brings home the bacon. Uh, when I talk to New Yorkers every day, they feel as if their belly is empty. Uh, we lead the nation in outward migration for a reason. One million people have voted uh, with their feet uh, that a working class state filled with working class people has not nearly enough working class opportunities to go around. Uh, and so for me, our thesis for this campaign is clear. If you are unhappy with the world as it is today, you cannot continue to vote for the architects who built it. There is no greater architect in American politics today than Chuck Schumer. And we believe we can build an uncommon coalition to be successful, not only in this election, but providing the type of advocacy that puts the people of New York first, not the politics of a political party.
So let's talk solutions to some of those problems. So when you look at New Yorkers that are moving out of the state and New Yorkers that are still here, cost of living is just insurmountable for a lot of people. And we have other issues here as well. Tell me what you would do at the federal level to turn things around. Some of this is in the state's control in terms of property taxes from state funding going to local governments. Obviously, I think the federal government can play a role there as well. But tell me what you would try to do to turn things around here in New York. Well, I think at the crux of all of this um, is this notion that government has been given carte blanche uh, to act in a manner that the private sector cannot. Uh, that permeates our lives in many different ways. You can start with something as basic as public housing. The largest slumlord in America is not a millionaire or a billionaire. It is New York City public housing. Uh, nights of housing, home to half a million souls, a larger than the population of Buffalo and Yonkers, New York, my hometown combined. If I were a billionaire who owned NYCHA and the conditions were as they are today, I would be in prison. Uh, there are things that we can do in that regard to make sure that that accountability is in place so that people get access to the American opportunity they deserve. Uh, you want to talk about something as basic as education. The inflation that we see in education, it is the one sector in the world uh, where the ability to pay uh, has nothing to do with what the price is actually being charged. Uh, tuition rates have skyrocketed nearly 300%. And so, yes, we need to have a serious conversation about canceling the debt. But we also have to have a conversation about what drives the cost that leads to the debt. It's quite simple. Say that you must tether your tuition costs to the actual earning potential, to the inflation, or however much you are over that percentage, you're actually going to lose that, per co that correlating percentage of your tax-exempt status. I think you would see quite clearly uh, tuition rates would start to fall. I could go on for hours because I'm a nerd with no life, uh, but there are plenty <laughs> of ways that we can get the government to work for we the people again. And the only people who don't seem to recognize that are the people whom we have entrusted to actually make the government work for us in the first place. Where are you on that student loan cancellation? That's something that Senator Schumer has tried to make a priority out of in recent months, asking President Biden to cancel at least $10,000 in student loan debt for everybody that has that kind of debt. Where are you on that? To be clear, Senator Schumer has not made it a priority. He's made it a, a talking prime talking point. Um, if he wanted it to be a priority, it would have been a priority. Yes, I think that we have to look at it. But we also have to make sure that the people who did the right thing who made decisions and paid off that debt also get some type of actual recuperation of the fact that they also incurred debt at sometimes at great peril to themselves and their family. And the root cause in many ways are the politicians who take the campaign contributions from the banks to make sure you can't get rid of the debt. And then once they're in power, say that they have the power to cancel the debt and use it as a cudgel to make sure that they can get your vote, to keep you blind from the truth, which is that they are in many ways are the source of the original problem. As we talk about cost of living, there is one issue that New York Democrats like to bring up quite a bit. In 2017, Republicans in Congress placed a cap on the deductibility of state and local taxes at the federal level. It's an issue that doesn't apply to everybody in New York. Usually it really applies more to high income people. I'm wondering where you are on that cap. Do you think that it should stay at that $10,000 level or do you think that it should be raised or eliminated? Uh, first and foremost, I, I look, I, I think the cap cripples 
uh, New Yorkers. I think not even we're not even really talking about rich New Yorkers, particularly when you talk about the cost of living uh, in New Yorkers. You're talking about working families just trying to get by, uh, dealing with runaway, out of control property taxes uh, to pay for an educational system that is not delivering uh, our students with the opportunity they deserve or giving them the tools they need to become the best version of themselves. So the entire system is broken. It is uh, morally bankrupt. It is also systemically uh, broken. Uh, we have to deal with it collectively, holistically. Uh, so yes, we need to make sure that we can provide that level of relief uh, to those middle-class families before the middle-class completely becomes an endangered species. Those are our priorities. That's why we got in this race, and those are the things we desperately need to discuss in this country. All right, Joe Pinion, looking forward to the campaign. It's going to be an exciting one. Thank you so Thank much you for so joining much. us. I appreciate it. God bless. Have a good one. And we have reached out to Senator Schumer's campaign to get him on the show, but haven't heard back just yet. Switching gears now, the Russia-Ukraine crisis has New York on alert. Daryl Camp is here with more. Daryl. Thanks, Dan. New York's officials are now warning about one of the unseen threats from the Russia-Ukraine crisis. That is the potential for widespread cyber attacks in New York and the USA as a whole. Governor Kathy Hochul said this week that the state is prepared to handle that, detailing new plans for the state's Joint Security Operations Center. The center, called JSOC, will focus on cybersecurity threats such as ransomware attacks. It was planned before the recent escalation of the Russia-Ukraine crisis, but Hochul said this week that it's more important now than ever. You know, certainly it was a, an important call I had with uh, the White House and others on Friday that, you know, reminded us of the vulnerabilities of what's happening across the world and the impact that it could have right here in our city, a city that has been known to terrorists, a place where that they know that they're attacking a way of life, the American way of life, if you attack New York City and New York State. JSOC will also be a resource for local government facing cyber threats, including New York City. New York City Mayor Eric Adams said that even though virtual threats may be out of sight, cybersecurity should not be out of mind or taken for granted when it comes to Russian activity. This is not hypothetical. This is not something we're just talking about that's distance removed. These attacks and attempted attacks are happening every day. It's just that we have put in place the right infrastructure uh, to constantly fortify how we approach this. Some Republicans at both the state and federal levels have been quite critical of President Biden in recent days, saying he has not been strong enough against Russian President Vladimir Putin. Democrats, meanwhile, appear to be behind Biden for the most part as the crisis continues. That includes U.S. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Here's what he told reporters this week in Albany. Um, so the president has the ability to impose swift, strong, effective sanctions, and I believe he's using them appropriately. And we will be watching to see how the Russia-Ukraine crisis impacts New York as it continues to develop. Interesting stuff. Thank you, Daryl. All right, bringing us back now to the state capitol. Restaurants are hoping for a lifeline in this year's state budget after thousands were forced to cut back and close during the pandemic. One option on the table is alcohol to go. You'll remember that during the pandemic, restaurants were allowed to sell alcohol with takeout orders for either pickup or delivery, but that ended last June when the state ended a series of emergency pandemic rules. Since then, restaurants have asked for it back, saying it would be a huge relief in a difficult time. And that has the backing of Governor Kathy Hochul as well. But the state legislature has been harder to convince. For more on that, I spoke earlier today with Melissa Flyshoot from the New York State Restaurant Association. 
Melissa, thank you so much for being here. I'm glad to be here. So we're talking alcohol to go, which is this issue that you've been advocating for for several months now since last summer when it expired during the pandemic. Restaurants were allowed to uh, send alcohol to go for pickup and delivery. It's something that was not allowed before the pandemic. So there's this push at the state level to get this permanently for restaurants, or in some cases, I think a bill has it for two years or one year. Your goal, I think, is to have it permanent. So far, the legislature hasn't said that they want to do this. It has the backing of Governor Hochul. Why do you think lawmakers haven't coalesced around this? What do you think the opposition is there? Well, there did seem to be some, you know, back and forth last year at the end of the legislative session, and we did push for it last year as well and didn't get there. Um, most of the concerns we heard came from concerns over the liquor store industry and what they were raising as possible concerns that we would have some sort of negative impact on their business. But that really didn't happen during the 15 months that we were allowed to have alcohol to go. It was the opposite. They made record profits, That right? is correct. That's what I thought. And it's interesting to me, so I, I've been thinking about this a lot, and liquor stores have, liquor stores essentially have alcohol to go themselves, because now we have apps where you can literally order bottles of liquor from liquor stores and have them delivered to your home. So from the restaurant perspective, can you kind of give some context? How did this benefit restaurants? How, how big of a help was it during the pandemic? So during the time that we were allowed to do alcohol to go, we found that those that were able to offer it as part of their takeout and delivery package had about 20 to 40% of their takeout sales that went to alcohol to go, depending on how creative they got and how imaginative they were in their offerings. That's a lot for, for just somebody's general sales. If it gets up to 40%, that's quite the revenue boost. Yeah, we heard that they were you know, able to pay for ex additional staff members or pay a utility bill at that time from the income that they got from this program. That's always good. Yeah. So moving forward, if you get this back, let's look at the restaurant industry now. So coming out of the pandemic, fingers crossed, knock on wood, that we're gonna come out of the pandemic sometime Absolutely. soon. How are restaurants right now in New York? What does the loss look like from the start of the pandemic to where we are now? Um, total loss in sales would be in the billions. Um, wow. We saw from the Restaurant Revitalization Fund that passed at the federal level, they were able to apply for funding for their 2020 losses. And the 2020 losses of the 27,000 applicants that we saw apply had asked for more than $9.6 billion. Um, and they had to subtract out any payroll protection program loans that they got at that time as well. So they're significant just from, from that year alone, not counting 2021. And then what we saw with this recent Omicron wave uh, hit mm. them hard over the holidays as well. Yeah, I can imagine. So if, moving forward, if we were to put alcohol to go back into place, how much would that help restaurants in terms of their recovery? Is this something that would be a lifeline for restaurants moving forward right now, or is this something that would just kind of provide more of a, a little bump for them. I'm trying to gauge as we come out of the pandemic and things get back to normal, how big of a part of a business would it be for them? It definitely depends on the type of restaurant as to how big of the offering is. For some, it would be a lifeline. They would absolutely be able to make um, you know, additional sales and revenue out of this that could sustain their businesses. For others, it's going to be an extra bump to help them build back. And we're just trying to take all the pieces that really worked during the pandemic, things like outdoor dining and alcohol to go, and put them together and help rebuild the industry because we really feel it's going to take I'm hearing years to bring the industry back. Oh, I can imagine. I mean, two years of a pandemic where you're dealing with lower sales, less people coming into restaurants, just a different atmosphere for restaurants around the state. I can imagine it's gonna take years to get back to normal. Um, you know, looking at this, I know one of the concerns about alcohol to go was, and it was addressed in the rules, is 
if a restaurant is, is giving somebody alcohol to go, are they going to walk down the street with a margarita mm -hmm. and be publicly drinking down the street? So what kind of regulations can the state put in place to address those types of concerns of this public drinking or, you know, any other safety concerns related to it? So the open container rules are still there. They've always been there. I think what we saw a lot during the early months of alcohol to go was that people didn't have a place to go. Um, and right. there was nothing open, and so they were collecting and gathering on the streets, so, um, sometimes months after they'd seen other people. You know, we'd been locked away for quite some time at that point. I don't think we saw it as much in 2021, and I think if you look at alcohol to go as a whole over the time period we were allowed to do it, it really wasn't a problem after we got the initial reopening underway. So do we know in the legislature, this is, this is the part of this that is kind of like a mystery to me, do we know who in the legislature is opposed to this? Who, who's holding this up? It has the support of the governor. Um, as far as I know, there's not any clear opposition from the legislative leaders to it. Do we know anyone specific that is trying to hold this up? Well, we're really hopeful that it's going to be in the Senate One House and the House One House, the Assembly One House bill. Um, so we really are, are hopeful that there isn't strong opposition amongst the legislature and that we're going to be able to get it included in those One House bills and then included in the final package with the governor um, and the negotiations as we move through March. And I do want to make sure. So I know that there was a bill from Assemblymember Pat Fahey who I think her bill initially uh, extended it for a year or two years. You want this to be made permanent, right? Not just through this kind of recovery period. Well, right now we're supporting Governor Hochul and her efforts in the executive budget to make it permanent and bring back drinks to go. So we would love to see that, yes. And with just uh, you know, 30, 45 seconds left, tell me what else the state could do to help restaurants moving forward. Obviously this, is, this would help restaurants a little bit. I don't think that it fills all the gaps. So what could the state do? It doesn't fill all the gaps. Um, you know, the funding that we would need, again, like I said, in the billions is, is still needed. So those 17,000 uh, that didn't get funding from the RRF, we're continuing to ask Congress for that. That's a almost $6 billion ask just yeah. for, for those applicants that applied and didn't get funded last year. So um, we really expect that to have to come from the federal level. But, you know, small things like continuing uh, outdoor dining with the eased restrictions from the SLA has been very helpful to the industry. So we're hoping that they'll continue to do that. All right. Well, we will see where it goes. I mean, restaurants are vital to the state's economy. So I imagine that lawmakers and the governor are going to be looking at ways to boost up that industry as they are with other, other industries this year, like healthcare. So we'll see where it goes. Melissa Fleischut from the New York State Restaurant Association. Thank you. Thank you. So we'll see where alcohol to go ends up either in the state budget or otherwise. Until then, thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.